Today's Your Stories is brought to you by Emporium Arcade Bar. Emporium's three Chicagoland locations combine the best arcade games, craft beer, and live events. Check out emporiumchicago.com cpc for a free drink or game tokens. Thanks, Emporium. Your Stories is a wonderful opportunity to share all the highs and lows of being a nerd. You know that hobby you have that you don't talk to anyone about? It's a secret you don't like to share because it might make you feel weird. Maybe you're into something different. Uh, comic books, fantasy football, push-ups. Your stories to me has been this really kind and welcoming space where people just have the guts to be really honest and they share their voices and their stories with everyone there. No questions asked. Uh, I've heard stories about all those things. Uh, maybe not, not a lot of push-ups. I maybe haven't heard a lot of stories about push-ups. The Nerdalogs is group therapy meets Toastmasters. I know there's always a place where my odd thoughts and unusual habits will be welcomed and championed in a warm, supportive environment by other nerds just like me. And what's fun is you'll see people in the audience one month, and then all of a sudden they uh, go up and tell their story. So your story becomes their story and their story is your story and then it's our story and then it's a podcast so it's everybody's story and then you've shared it and gosh that's great huh and even if you don't think you're a nerd you probably are it's easily the most midwestern thing i've ever been a part of Hi friends, I'm Eric Arnault, and this is part two of the Nerdalogs Presents Your Stories podcast featuring the theme Grit, which was chosen by our special guests and co-curators for the evening that you're going to hear, the LGBT sports fundraiser Puck and Grind. This week you'll hear from hockey player Casey Rathundi, storyteller Brian Willey, Chicago comedian Kelly Dugan, and Puck and Grind producer Allie Lawrence, plus there's music from me, Becca Brown, Claire Friedman, Dwight Hassler, and Jim Snedeker. The band is all here all together very cool uh the puck and grind event that you're going to hear about was this past saturday so thank you so much to everyone who came out or contributed to that in any way i know dwight claire and i had a blast providing the musical entertainment there and we are definitely looking forward to doing it again next year um our next your stories live show where we will also be the musical entertainment is sunday august 21st at the some office theater 1917 north elston in chicago Uh, We're working on putting together a tremendous lineup, and believe you me, it's going to be a blast. Uh, I can already tell you our featured guests for the evening are the creators of Taylor Swift Girl Detective, an incredible kickstarted illustrated book that sees Taylor Swift solving mysteries with her best friend and sidekick, Lord. It is super rad. Um, Before we get to the show, I want to again thank our sponsors for this week. First up, Emporium Arcade Bar. Trust me, that place is awesome. I have had a lot of fun there. Go have fun there and be like me. Um, We also have another super cool sponsor for this episode, and that is Board Game Bento. Board Game Bento is a subscription box for tabletop lovers. All Board Game Bento boxes come loaded with at least $80 worth of epic games and gaming accessories. Every month's box has a theme, uh, kind of like our show, and next month's theme is sports. Now, as a game store manager, let me tell you, that is a rich vein to mine. Uh, now, you only have five days left to sign up for this month's box, though, so get on that. Uh, you can point your browser to BoardGameBento.com and sign up now. And guess what? You can even save money while doing that, uh, because Bento, exclusive for our listeners, has provided a promo code, which is NERDS, capital N-E-R-D-S, 
to receive $5 off any Board Game Bento subscription level. That is really cool. Again, thank you so much, Board Game Bento. You guys are going to love what you get from them. Uh, I think that's all I've got to cover for now, so everyone, please enjoy the show. This this was uh this was Becca's idea because I think we all, the word grit all kind of spoke to in all of us like where did we learn grit well from these animated heroes and heroines am I am I right? Heroine. Yes. Yes. Heroines. <laughs> animated heroines. animated heroines no, like the little dancing like needles the, no oh, that's not a Dumbo? Yeah. <laughs> yeah that's animated heroine. I think that was in Dumbo yeah all right here we go. Snow glows white on the mountain tonight, not a footprint to be seen. A kingdom of isolation, and it looks like I'm the queen. The wind is howling like this swirling storm inside. Couldn't keep it in, heaven knows I tried. Don't let them in, don't them see, be the good girl you always had to be. Conceal, don't feel, don't let them know. Well, now they know. Let it go, let it go. Can't hold back anymore. Let it go, let it go. Turn away and slam the door. I don't care what they're going to say. Let the storm rage on. Cold never bothered me anyway. I have often dreamed of a far off place where a hero's welcome would be waiting for me. Where the crowds would cheer when they see my face. And a voice keeps saying, this is where I'm meant to be. I'll be there someday. I can go the distance. I will find my way. If I can be strong, I know every mile would be worth my while. When I go the distance, I'll be right where I belong. All of your answers were wrong. Let's get down to business to defeat the Huns. Did they send me daughters when I asked for sons? You're the saddest bunch I ever met, but you can bet before. Mr. Raw, make a man out of you. I'm never gonna catch my breath. Think about it, those who know me. Why was I a fool in school for cutting jam? This guy's gonna scare to death. Hope he doesn't see right through me. Man, I really wish that I learned how to swim. We must be swift as coursing. 
down, let it go. Of course, of course, I was the one who fought for the inclusion of the, the Michael Bolton part of that song. I, I am very white, but truthfully, I've never seen Hercules, but it is, it is my favorite level in Kingdom Hearts, so... Because it's all about James Spader. No, that's not James. Yeah. No, James Woods, not James Spader. Those are two very different people. It's all about James Woods, everybody. James Spader's cool, too. Anyway, coming up first in this second half of Storytellers, we have, uh, she's going to be a player at Puck and Grind Saturday. She also is part of the Chicago Snow. This is Casey Rathunde. Rathundi. There we go. Yeah. Playing hockey is, in fact, one of the least gritty things I've ever done. I've been some sort of athlete for most of my life, a gymnast, a diver, a dancer. But it wasn't until I started playing hockey that people started saying to me, oh, you must be tough. Nobody ever said that to me when I was a gymnast. Nobody says it about diving. And nobody ever said it to me while I was dancing 8 to 14 hours a day. But hockey, I don't even have to be good at to claim that particular badge. There is a fallacy that grit exists in opposition to grace. In a hockey game, I can slam my stick on the ice. I can swear. I can swish my mouth out with water and spit it from the bench. And I guess to some people, that looks tough. My gear smells bad. And one time, I blew my nose in my jersey during a game because I was sick and I didn't have another option. Uh, True grit, I suppose, is a little bit disgusting. The grittiest thing I've ever done, however, required elaborate hair and makeup and was set to music. Two days before the opening of a two-week show run, I hyperextended my knee so badly that it took almost 48 hours to stop sneaking in the wrong direction every time I put weight on it. It was a fun surprise to find out if it would bend forwards like a human's or backwards like something out of a Japanese horror film. You might think that would be an impediment to dancing, but if that's the case, you've never known a dancer. For two weeks, I made the audience believe a beautiful lie. I smiled my way through a slinky duet section as if I didn't have a care in the world. My partner and I sold our steady eye contact as a flirtatious simmer, even though we both knew that his gaze was actually my lifeline, pulling me through each step. If you were in the audience, you'd never have known anything was wrong let alone that every time I planted my weight on my leg, I was thinking, please only bend the direction you were designed to bend. Uh. I just did my best to think it in a fun, sexy way. (laughs) (laughs) Months later, an MRI would show that my tibia, which is the weight-bearing bone on my lower leg, was still swollen from where I had hit it into my own femur. But because I did my job, you'd never have known it that night. When I'm on the ice now, playing my tough sport, I relish the fact that I can show a little anger or frustration, that I can wince and shake my foot if I get hit in the skate with a puck and swear a blue streak when I get back to the bench. Studies have actually shown that this kind of behavior can help ease pain. I don't think anyone has proven it scientifically, but I'm willing to bet that the effort of projecting that serene facade may send the needle in the other direction. Still, we know which one of these scenarios is considered classically tough, and it's not the one where my lipstick looks great and I'm smiling. The other fallacy of grit that I've noticed is that aggression is seen as a vital component. Because I play defense, I get to do a lot of shoving in front of my team's net. Sometimes that means I get to knock someone down, which is always a good time. (laughs) And sometimes it means that someone takes a cheap shot at me. People think that this makes me really tough, but... That kind of aggression can only lead to a brief moment of pain that you can't control or predict. 
I suppose putting yourself in a position where someone might try to pop you in the kidneys with a hockey stick is a little bit tough, but you might get hit by a car every time you cross the street, and we don't call anyone tough for doing that. We think of sports where other people might hurt you as the toughest and grittiest sports. If a huge muscular dude in a helmet is trying to slam you into something, then congratulations, you must be tough. But what about the sports where the only person who might slam you into something unforgiving is yourself? As a gymnast, I body slammed a vault horse while running full speed. I cracked my shins into a wooden bar and then dropped five feet onto my face. I even split the beam once, which is a polite euphemism for saying that my feet missed on opposite sides, and I slammed into it crotch first. <laughs> and every time, I got up and I tried again. And sure, it takes grit and a little bit of fearlessness to get back on the ice after being shaken up by something, and yeah, you have to be a little brave to give someone a warning shove when you know they might retaliate, but it's nothing like standing at the end of a diving board, preparing to hurdle yourself blindly backwards with as much force as your body can generate. Opening yourself up to the possibility of danger is one thing, but actively mastering your own fear in order to recreate the situation that just brought you pain, to me, that is truly gritty. Grit is not a concept that we should be reserving for only certain kinds of people. I can be just as gritty in lipstick or spandex as I am in a helmet and pads. You don't need the formality of competitive sports or the validation of somebody else's aggression to feel like you are tough and strong. You don't need to look a certain way, wear the right gear, or lift a certain amount of weight. And you don't have to be impressive by anybody else's standards or know how to swagger your way through a good sports story over a beer or three. It doesn't matter if you're a run walker or beer league kickball player or just following along with a yoga video at home on YouTube. If you're pushing past your own fears and testing the limits of your endurance, then you also have a claim to grit, even if nobody in foul-smelling equipment is trying to jack you in the kidneys. <laughs> That was great. I was going to say something about how we all learned something about true grit, and then I, I realized I can't believe no one out of five people so far, plus all us idiots like singing, no one mentioned that movie yet. I'm really proud of all of us as an audience for not going there, but hey. I know. I did. I, cause that's, I saw that opening. I'm like, yeah, I'm going to be the one. I'm going to broach that. True grit and the remake, both pretty good. Anyway, guys, pretty good. Coming up next to the stage, we have um, a great storyteller. He's, this is, I believe, his third time doing the show. Always has great stuff to tell you. Really excited to hear from Mr. Brian Willey. Hey, Brian. All right, well, this is my third time, and uh, I've been very impressed by uh, the quality of the stories that I've heard here. Um, there have been very funny stories, uh, and there have been some uh, very personal stories that I've heard. Uh, I kind of, you know, had to sort of uh, think back to what I would want to do tonight um, for an example of toughness or grit. And uh, so I went back to when I was uh, a kid. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. All good children go to psych ward. I went to high school during a weird time when parents were super worried about the music their kids were listening to and the games they were playing. Specifically, they were worried about hard rock, heavy metal, and Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> They were worried about this because they feared the influence of Satan, of drugs, of sex, and of gay people. I'm not 100% on the last one, but my mother was definitely worried about gay people and their insidious effect on society through the entertainment industry. As a consequence of this concern, parents were sending their kids to psych wards and rehab centers in huge numbers. We could all relate to the song by Suicidal Tendencies, Institutionalized, where the kid is just being a kid, but his parents freak out and send him to a psych ward. In this excerpt, I have replaced Mike with Brian. 
I was in my room and I was just like staring at the wall thinking about everything. But then again, I was thinking about nothing. And then my mom came in and I didn't even know. She was there and she called my name. I didn't even hear it. And then she started screaming, Brian, Brian. And I go, what? What's the matter? And she goes, what's the matter with you? I go, there's nothing wrong, mom. And she goes, don't tell me that. You're on drugs. And I go, no, mom, I'm not on drugs. I'm okay. I was just thinking, you know, why don't you get me a Fanta? And she goes, no, you're not thinking. You're on drugs. Normal people don't act that way. This is exactly how you could end up finding out what your parents' medical insurance covered for mental health. <laughs> wearing black t-shirts, uh, wearing flannel when it was hot out, <laughs> being quiet, keeping to yourself, playing tabletop role-playing games, having friends addressed in cool and interesting ways. These all counted against you and indicated you might be in serious need of a month or two in an institution. In my case, I made things worse by actually using drugs and alcohol yeah. and being sloppy about where I hid them. It was bad when my mom found a half-full bottle of Jack Daniels under my bed when she was vacuuming, but it was worse when she found my bowl while going through the pockets of my jacket. Combined with my actual chronic depression, a hatred of school, and an avid interest in role-playing games, well, you can imagine a chart with reasons to put Brian and psych ward on one side and reasons to leave him the hell alone on the other, and that chart is heavily weighted in favor of temporarily incarcerating me. I went in for what I thought was a talk with a therapist, and I got locked in. I was very angry, and it took me a couple of weeks to figure out what they wanted to hear. I didn't actually know there was a time limit on my cure because of the insurance, so as far as I knew, I could be there for years or forever. It was terrifying. Most people there were there for rehab purposes uh, with a few attempted suicides. The ward shared common areas with geriatric patients, which was weird and very disturbing in some cases. This is before I even knew what Alzheimer's was, but I'm sure now that that's what a lot of them were suffering from. I learned a lot about my personal mental toughness. You have to come to terms with the fact that you no longer have any personal power or rights. You are completely at their mercy, and the more you complain, the worse you make it. It's possible to game the system, but it's bad news if you get caught. But it's human nature to survive, to persevere, and that's what I learned to do. I forced myself to make friends, first with a blues guitarist from New Mexico who was addicted to something called crystal, or meth, which I had never heard of at the time. Talking about music was incredibly soothing to my soul, but I came back from a mandatory day trip one day and he was gone, released into his girlfriend's custody. I hope he stayed clean. There was also a woman who played piano. She looked like a cute corporate executive of some kind with a great sense of humor. She was in trying to kick her addiction to cocaine, which was a drug that I had heard of. I left before she did, and I'd be surprised if she was able to kick it. She would get this wistful look in her eyes whenever she talked about cocaine, the way people look when they talk about the one that got away, or that time they won a boatload of money in Vegas. I started showering regularly and making an effort to dress in street clothes once that was allowed. At first, I had to wear hospital clothes, which is to prevent escape and to hammer home the point that you are, in fact, a prisoner. My buddy with the meth problem got me exercising, doing push-ups and sit-ups. It helped my mental state and the staff liked seeing that. It showed progress. I would lead songs, uh, sorry, I would lead sing-alongs of Boston songs while my coke-loving friend played piano. <laughs> it was fun, uh, despite sounding like a bunch of desperate people screaming for help in Hell's Lobby. Uh, and it showed, it showed leadership, more progress. I got over my humiliation at being locked up and I wrote letters to my friends who were kind enough to bring me food and magazines and books. Besides keeping me from going actually crazy, which was a very real possibility in there, it showed an outgoing social nature. The staff liked that. Finally, there was a big meeting between the staff and me and my parents. It was tense, as some members felt I wasn't completely sincere and wanted to keep me there. 
But this is when I learned about the limits of insurance. My dad pointed out that the insurance company would not pay for any more inpatient time. The staff suddenly agreed that I was cured. <laughs> now I know that I can survive under very harsh conditions, at least for a while. But to this day, I don't know what exactly I was being treated for or what I was cured of. Some things in life, they just stay a mystery. You have to be okay with that. Thank you. Brian and Lily, everybody. Brian, thank you so much. Uh, no joke, but it, it breaks my heart that parents would do that to somebody. Oh, my God, that's awful. But now I do have a joke um, because this is a comedy show. So maybe, Jim, you'll remember this. Jim and I went to the same high school. It was a Catholic high school. They made us watch uh, this video in freshman year religion class about staying away from all of Satan's influences, which, of course, was drugs and alcohol and heavy metal. This video was made in the 80s. We were at freshman in 1998, and the scene I always remember from the video was this girl who's wearing um, a cross necklace, goes into a record store, and and she picks up Hysteria by Def Leppard. Hysteria by Def Leppard. And she looks at it, and then she hides her cross under her blouse and goes to buy it. Def Leppard is evil, I guess. Apparently, that was the best example they could come up with for satanic music, was a bunch of British dudes who sang, like, ten-part harmonies on choruses. The fuck? I'd be more willing that Tom Schultz is some kind of closet Satanist. He's the guitar player from Boston, P.S. You guys may not have known that. I like Boston. So we have two more storytellers tonight. This next, this next speaker uh, is a member of the Blue Angels with fellow Nerdalogs uh, member Kevin Reeder. Uh, she is part of a team, Bad Women, and also on IO's newest Herald team. But for me, I'm, no offense, that's not what I think is interesting because she was a member of my very favorite improv comedy troupe when I went to college. We went to the same school. She was in Spicy Clamato, which was how I got my introduction to, to live comedy way back when, when I was just a wee Eric. This is Kelly Dugan. Thank you so much. And thank you all of you for sharing your wonderful stories. And thank you in advance for listening. This story is something I titled Protocol. Age 16 marks a pivotal milestone in most teenagers' life. It's a year that they can legally operate a motor vehicle and mark their entry into early adulthood. Most of my peers cherished this opportunity and began cruising around in their parents' cars the very second that they were permitted to. The days of loitering in Circle Park for hours and asking our parents for ride everywhere were finally over. I, however, was the ultimate outlier. I avoided taking that step at all costs for as long as humanly possible. In fact, believe it or not, I waited a full four years longer than my counterparts, which equates to the length of another entire high school career of non-driving. Mm -hmm. To quantify that even more clearly for you, I waited until I was 20 years old to get behind the wheel of a vehicle. Driving at the ripe age of 16 seemed absurd to me. Even though I went through all of the motions, took driver's education, and men memorized the contents of the manual in its entirety, do you know they specify that you shouldn't beep at a horse because it can spook it? They did. They said that in the manual. It's in there, and I remember it distinctly. I knew everything, but I had absolutely no desire to have sole responsibility of operating a motorized vehicle that, I researched this, weighs roughly 4,000 pounds. Me? But no. No thanks. There were simply too many rules to remember, some of which had exceptions to those rules, and it was all just too much to bear for my little 16-year-old head. So I, opting to walk, ride my bike, rollerblading, and taking the bus seemed much more preferable to me at the time. But when I turned 20, the I had the unfortunate realization that driving was going to, at some point, be a necessity in my adult life. So I went ahead, and I very reluctantly obtained my driver's license. And mind you, this was after, at age 16, my driver's ed 
teacher told me that I was emotionally unready to go on the highway. <laughs> so it took a lot of courage to do this and make this step. And to my great surprise, everything went seemingly well after that. Well, for a short while at least. On the two-week anniversary of getting my driver's license, I was driving home after working the early bird shift at the local pool I was head lifeguard at when absolute disaster struck. But before I tell you this tale of vehicular chaos, allow me to provide some greater insights into the context of my peculiar behavior. I have to say, I'm incredibly patient in general. In fact, I consider myself to be very tolerant, and instances where I actually get angry are a total rarity. But there are some things in life that leave me absolutely incensed. It's not even so much a behavior that bothers me, but more so a phrase that's used very casually in conversation. And I know we've all heard it before. Some of us may have even said it before. Oh my God, I am so OCD about this. (laughs) Oh my God, he's being so OCD, I swear. You know, I get really OCD about my house and my schoolwork. No! No! You're not OCD, okay? No, you're not. I know that the intent of saying these things has no malice or no will, ill will behind it whatsoever. I know that. And I've had people say it directly to me um, about themselves a multitude of times without any level of cognizance of the effect that it has on me. But truth be told, it's highly insensitive to use the label of a neurological disorder as a fun way to articulate how particular you are about something. <laughs> What it does is it completely undermines the experience of millions of people who actually suffer from it. Target stores even went as far as releasing a sweater this past December that said, OCD, Obsessive Christmas Disorder. Ugh. I mean, I I, I like gagged in the store. And don't get me wrong, I purchased multiple things afterwards, but I was so angry. So angry. Ugh makes me ill. It blatantly trivialized the disorder, made a mockery of something that has the potential to ruin people's livelihood and deeply impacts their ability to function on a day-to-day basis. When I saw it, my heart sank to think that this was a piece of clothing that people would wear to Christmas parties and get a cheap laugh from their friends at the expense of another person at that same gathering that might be silently suffering. I am very proud to declare that I'm no longer silently suffering, but I once was. My diagnosis came at a shockingly early age, which is fairly unusual in regards to OCD. I was nine years old, and I was in fourth grade. I didn't know what the hell was wrong with me, and I was overwhelmed with shame in the face of my peculiar behavior. It was behavior that I couldn't control, couldn't even begin to understand, but also I couldn't stop, despite my best efforts to. And for those of you who are unfamiliar with the disorder, and people on the podcast, you can roll your eyes if you know and you're listening to me define it, but... OCD is a neurological disorder that is characterized by obsessions and compulsions. Obsessions are those repeated thoughts and urges and mental images that cause anxiety, and then compulsions are the repeated behaviors that a person feels the urge to do in response to that obsessive thought. For reasons still unknown to me, I became obsessed with the fear associated with getting in trouble and failing academically, but above all, I was uh, terrified at the mere thought of leaving personal belongings or handwritten notes behind in a manner that someone else could then recover them and keep them as their own, thereby violating my privacy. And I know, I know that sounds crazy. I knew at the time, at age nine, that it was crazy. I didn't know why that mattered to me, and I certainly didn't have anything of value to worry about or anything personal that anyone could recover, but I couldn't stop myself from thinking that. And in order to ease this fear that I knew very well was irrational, I had to perform my compulsions. I had to pace every corner of every room I exited, wide-eyed, checking every inch of the ground to make sure I had not left anything behind. Checking a room took about a half hour. Uh, Checking a room about this size, probably 45 minutes an hour. 
Checking houses took multiple hours, so God forbid I go to a friend's house. God help me. Uh, And checking outdoor venues like Six Flags with my family left me reeling with anxiety and completely crippled crippled with apprehension. I I just distinctly remember my dad going, Cal, is there anything I can do? Are you sure? Can, Can I help you out? You can't. You can't. And it was so kind of him to ask. It just, it didn't make any sense. And I knew that, but I had to do these rituals. It was the only way to subside my feelings of uneasiness and return me back to baseline. I distinctly remember feeling completely trapped and tortured within the confines of my own mind. When you're that young, nine years old, you simply assume that you're invincible, that in life is always going to be free of worry. And it wasn't. So when that was no longer my experience, as my every moment was riddled with anxiety and checking and being made fun of by my peers for my odd behavior and self-conscious awareness of how different I was, I was devastated. Luckily, my parents were incredibly proactive in getting me the help that I needed as soon as OCD began to overrun my ability to function and engage in the world around me. It was by no means a quick fix or a short journey to wellness. And in fact, I still remember Dr. Deb, who made me do exposure prevention therapy. She made me actually write personal things about myself, tear them up, and walk away without getting them. And I hated her. I hated her, but she was doing me a service, but I hated her. Uh, Now, I can look back, celebrate where I am today, and even laugh at my own tendencies that continue to exist. Like earlier, I spilled Diet Coke on one of these papers, and it's... It's still driving me nuts. Um, even though my obsessions and compulsions no longer run my life, my brain will always be uniquely particular and rule-oriented. Now, I hope it makes a bit more sense as to why I waited those four extra years to get that license. I needed to know everything. Uh, so let's return to where I left off as I drove home from my early morning lifeguarding shift. As you may expect from what you now know about me, I was driving 10 and 2. My mirrors had been perfectly adjusted. My belt was safely fastened and buckled across the correct angle of your abdomen because do you know if you don't put it against the correct angle, you could severely hurt yourself if the bags go off? It's important to know. Please buckle up. Um, And I was driving a cautious five miles below the speed limit, which is what I do and which is why I was late today. I was stopped at a red light, and when it went green, I gently pressed on the gas to accelerate, but nothing happened. I pressed again with the same unsuccessful result, and then panic set in. Oh my God, oh my God, what rule am I breaking? Uh, What am I not remembering? What had I done wrong? I did remember one thing. When your car is stalled, engage the hazard so people on the road don't just think you're an asshole. But oh my God, oh my God, somewhere in the course of my extensive studies, I didn't know what the hazards looked like. Where are the hazards? I didn't know where they were. How did I overlook this detail? Where the hell was that little button? After a few minutes of my frantic search passed, I saw in my peripheral vision that a driver next to me was raving, raving furiously to get my attention. I rolled my window down, annoyed that she was interrupting my search, but also not wanting to insult what appeared to be a perfectly good citizen. And she yelled, there are flames coming out from underneath your car. <laughs> what? Flames? I had not read any literature about how to deal with flames. And I still had not at this point found the hazard, so I I couldn't possibly be troubled with flames. I had to follow the rules. That was the ultimate priority. And I know that sounds crazy, but all I could think about was the hazards, despite that I could very well be on fire any moment. So while my brain continued to fixate on protocol and distance itself from the task of dealing with any sort of fire, flames then started shooting out of my hood and along the edge of my front window when the windshield wipers were. Oh, shit. I'm in danger. I scooted across to the passenger seat so I could safely get out on the side of my car that was not in the midst of traffic, hesitating before my final exit as I glanced one last time at the dashboard, yearning to adhere to the rules that I love so much. But it was to no avail. 
I looked back longingly at my Ford Taurus and started sobbing. Not necessarily due to the fact that my life was briefly endangered, but more so because I had miserably failed in my ability to find the godforsaken hazards. And in this moment of emotional turmoil, I lacked the awareness to contact the necessary authorities about my car that at this point was completely engulfed in flames. Luckily, and very conveniently, this was all taking place in front of a police station. So an officer ran outside at the sight of the billowing smoke, saw the emotional frenzy that I was in, and called for assistance. In the meantime, I felt compelled to call every member of my family, the people who I knew would understand, the people who really understood me because I knew they could console me. First, I called my sister, who at the time was three hours away at college, and she responded, Kelly, what do you want me to do? Uh. Then I called my mother, who I later found out ignored my call because she was making a hair appointment on the other line for new highlights. And finally, I contacted my dad, who I'd seen only moments earlier swimming his obligatory morning laps and who then headed to McDonald's to negate every calorie he had just burned with a hearty, low-budget breakfast. He promised to drive over immediately, and as I waited, I had the displeasure of seeing multiple people from high school drive by the scene that was now escalating to epic proportions of disaster. Oh my God, that's Kelly Dugan. She got her license, finally? <laughs> and, and now her car is on fire? Oh my God, go figure. And why is she in a bathing suit? At this point, the firemen were using an axe to cut through the hood of my car and get to the source of the fire. Two lanes of the street going south on Kedzie were blocked off entirely. I was the focal point of the intersection. I had nowhere to hide. Honestly, that part didn't even bother me. Uh, It was just those damn hazards that were still haunting me. Soon enough, my dad pulled up and his eyes widened at the sight before him as the egg McMuffin fell out of his hands and onto the street. He rushed to my side and embraced me in a tight hug that calmed me like nothing else could at the moment and engaged in perhaps the most touching moment ever that we've had as father and daughter. Cal, I'm so glad you're okay. (laughs) That could have been so much worse. I love you so much. Don't even worry about the car for a second, honestly. Although, I have to be honest, Cal, my new George Harrison CD was in there. (laughs) And there you have it, folks. Proof that OCD is indeed genetic. As my family Ford Taurus burned to the ground, I could only mourn my inability to properly follow protocol, and my dad could only focus on his now-melted George Harrison CD. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you, Kelly. Apologies to George Harrison. Poor George, always got the short shrift, burned up, you know, it happens. Oh, we're so glad you're safe, man, that's real scary. I've never seen flames coming out of my car, I don't know what I would do. Anyway, guys, we have one more storyteller, you've already seen her up here tonight, I told you you'd see her again. Just as a refresher, she is the producer of Puck and Grind, as well as a commissioner and a backup goalie, Miss Allie Lawrence. So I've been a fan of burlesque for a long time. I started going to shows when I was in college, and I was in love with it right away. I loved the artistry of it, the costumes, the stories they were telling. It was this fun mix of like sexiness and humor, and it was just really provocative and empowering. It was amazing, and I wanted to be a part of it, but I couldn't. I was too afraid to. I knew that like I could, like, I knew I could make the costumes. I knew I had the ideas. And I had songs and choreography all figured out in my head. But society told me that my body was unattractive, that nobody wanted to see me get naked. And that's what told me, or that's what was the reason why, that it took three years before I even decided to take a burlesque class. 
And when I saw that there were classes even being offered, it took me a few months to even sign up for it. Finally, what I ended up doing or deciding was that what's the worst that could happen? I go to the class. If I don't like it, I just don't go back. I lose 100 bucks and an hour of time. Well, what did happen was I now perform under the name Lady Alley Mode. I'm in two burlesque troops. I've headlined shows. I performed in front of audiences of 500 people. I've been in multiple festivals. Pretty much all these things, these amazing things that have happened in like the sense of like a, a burlesque career, let alone like all the amazing people I've met because of it, happened because I decided I wasn't going to let my fear stop me from doing something I want to do. Don't get me wrong, I still have like all those body issues. And I still like sit there and have that fear right before I get on stage of like I'm going to go out there and I'm going to be I'm going to humiliate myself. But I don't let that stop me. A couple years ago, I decided that I kind of wanted to experience something like this again. I wanted to try something new and something that was kind of scary. At the time I started getting into hockey, the Blackhawks were doing really well. It made it kind of easy. <laughs> I have a, a good friend, uh, Casey, who talked earlier, actually um, took me under her wing and taught me everything I needed to know about hockey, what offsides was, why Brent Seabrook's nickname is Nachos. <laughs> she brought me into this really great online community where I met all these really like great bloggers and just really cool people on Twitter, all these guys who were just like made me feel welcome which is weird in sports, right? I'm a girl, they shouldn't feel welcome. But it was a great group, I loved it. And I was in that same situation again where like, I didn't wanna just be an audience member anymore. I wanted to take part in it. So I found adult hockey, hockey classes. And again, I thought, what's the worst that can happen? <laughs> if I don't like it after one class, I'll leave. Well, here's what the worst that can happen is, you could fall 29 times in an hour. <laughs> you're going to humiliate yourself in, a bunch of, in front of a bunch of other people that you just met. You can also get a stick right to your belly button when you fell because you don't know how to fall right. There's a way to fall. There's a, the correct way and the wrong way. But at the end of the class, after I fell for my 29th time, because I did keep count, the coach came up to me and helped me up. And then he pointed at a sign that was hanging above the, uh, the goal net, right above the Blackhawks logo. And it said, don't judge those who try and fail, judge those who fail to try. Because of that, it's been two, three years now, and I'm a goalie, which is the most difficult position in hockey. Uh, some argue the most difficult position in sports. And again, I went from not doing any sports at all to doing this. Don't uh, confuse my enthusiasm with talent. <laughs> I always feel like I need to preference that. <laughs> but I do try really fucking hard. Because of hockey, I've started going to trainers more. I skate three, four, five times out of a week. And I just want to get better. The same with burlesque. I met all these amazing people because of it. People who I never would have. And... I got to have this new relationship with my body. It wasn't just this thing that was or wasn't attractive, but it was a tool. And yeah, it's kind of broken most of the time, 
but I'm working on to get it better. What I can do this year compared to what I could do last year is leaps and bounds. So, and this all happened because I decided I wasn't going to be afraid to try something new. And not letting fear stop you is what I think is what is gritty. I didn't want to end the night with something that's kind of like a little heavy and like, oh, body issues, blah, blah, blah. So I wanted to tell one little story that united the burlesque world and the hockey world, I think, in this really perfect way. So I do this act where I have this awesome reveal where I put this hat on and I throw the hat off and glitter flies out of it. And then I whip my hair back and glitter flows out like a big sparkly mohawk. And it's beautiful and the crowd loves it and I have glitter in my hair for about a week. I left that show at about 3 a.m. and I had ice time at 8 a.m. that morning. I didn't even bother taking a shower or getting my makeup off. I just like went home, went to sleep, got up and like ran to the rink. I looked like the Joker. I had like mascara smeared everywhere and my lipstick was all gross. And of course, like my scalp was bleeding glitter. <laughs> Somehow I got onto the ice before warm-ups had uh, finished. My coach sees me and he's skating up to me. He's going to give me a hard time like he normally does if I'm late. But as soon as he sees through my mask and just sees like the mess <laughs> that is my face, the 60-year-old man just laughs and hits his stick against my pads and like, looking good, Allie. <laughs> points me off to the crease and tells me to get started I don't know if he was like trying to be funny that day but it was all shooting drills and again I'm the goalie the only goalie in this class so we started with 1 and O's 2 and O's 3 and O's and 4 and O's because who the fuck needs defense right <laughs> every time I stopped to take a break I lifted my helmet off to drink some water a puff of glitter would come off of my helmet, onto the net, onto the crease. By the end of the class, there was red glitter just literally everywhere. I remember thinking, like, that poor beerly goalie who's coming out right after us. Oh, man, his pads are going to look fabulous. <laughs> our buzzer goes off, our ice time's over. I go, I move the net off to the side so the Zamboni can clear. Obviously, the glitter is stuck there. Uh I go to the locker room, I change. I'm hearing a little bit of commotion outside. Normally, no one watches, like, the beer leaguers, the adult hockey, the classes. But there was a lot of people there today. But, you know, whatever. I walk out with my gear, glitter still kind of everywhere. And I see on the ice are the Chicago Blackhawks. Because they were practicing right after us. Their warm-ups had just finished, and they were about to do shooting drills. And guess who was in my crease? The crease that was still covered in glitter. Corey fucking Crawford. (laughs) If you're not a hockey fan, which it sounds like most of you kind of know, he's the guy who... uh, when they won the Stanley Cup in 2013, he was the one who went on the microphone on live TV and shouted how they worked their fucking nuts off. <laughs> well, he was working his fucking nuts off all over my glittery blue paint. <laughs> so the next day, uh, the Blackhawks had a game, and it was uh, game six of round one of the 2015 Stanley Cup finals. 
And uh, Crawford wasn't doing so hot in that series. He uh, got pulled. Scott Darling had play, uh, had to play for a couple games. Uh, Darling had to start in that game. And he wasn't doing so hot. He got scored a couple times. And Crawford had to then come in and relieve him. The Hawks uh, pulled ahead and they won that game. They then won that series. Uh, people argue that Crawford was one of the best players the rest of that series. He hoisted the cup that year in Tampa. And I like to think that amongst all that grit, I think I have to point, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> amongst all that grit and toughness and tenacity and sweat and blood and blah, 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 there was a little bit of glitter still hanging on. Yeah. Thank you. And, oh my God, someone listened to the podcast. She knows the rules. If you say the theme, you point to the sky. Uh, so this is a really cool song to close out the night, I think. And, uh, yeah, you guys want to kick it off? Yeah. Regret collect like offerings. Here too we live your darkest moments. I can see no way, I can see no way. And all of the ghouls come out to play And every demon wants his pound of flesh But I like to keep some things to myself I like to keep my issues strong It's always darkest
Your Stories is a proud part of the Chicago Podcast Co-op. If you enjoy Your Stories, you might also like Blaster Podcast. Blaster Podcast is a pretend science show hosted by a horrible doctor from the Italian Renaissance. Join host Dottore Bellordo and his guests as they explore new science topics every episode. Blaster Podcast. Let us experiment with yourself. For more info, go to blasterpodcast.com. This has been a Nerdalogs production. If you'd like to help make more things like this, please visit patreon.com slash nerdalogs to donate today. And go to www.nerdalogs.com for more cool stuff. Thanks for being awesome. Thank you all. Thank you all. I am Grabbot23548X.